0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Atlanta Startup Podcast. Your host here, William Leonard, and I am really excited for the conversation that we're going to have today with Nasir Chris, who is a principal at 68 Capital. Nasir, welcome to the
1: podcast. Hey, man. Good morning. Good morning. I'm excited for this. It's been a long time coming, Will. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I was thinking before we got on, like this is at least a year and a half, two years in the making. And the fact that it's happening now, I think the timing is is perfect. And I, I really want to talk a little bit about 68 here to start off, right? The firm is, you know, Indiana based. I I love the thesis of 68 and what you all are doing. Maybe you can can level set for our audience what 68 Capital is doing, who your
1: team is, and a little bit more about your thesis. For sure. So um we aim to be one of the you know best performing funds. Um uh, first checks into underrepresented founders. And so I think that thesis has kind of evolved a little bit over the last couple of years. It originally started as, hey, we invest in Black and Brown, LGBTQ+, women founding teams. Um, But as we've kind of seen some of the climate change a bit, we haven't changed our thesis, but I think we're telling a more broad story um, to make sure that we're encompassing Enough kind of concerning parties that are looking at specific areas of what underrepresented means, right? And so I think that we've kind of found that that definition is is fairly loose for some people. It could be underrepresented that they live in an overlooked geography. It could be underrepresented that they went to a public school instead of an ivy league. And so all in all, like with us in keeping with, hey, we want to propel more black and brown founders, more female founders, we said, hey, we're investing in the bottom 5% of founders that get capital allocation on an annual basis. And when you kind of shake out the demographics of what those things are and where those founders are, it's typically black, brown, LGBTQ plus women between the coast, right? So outside of your major cities like Boston, New York, San Francisco, LA, Miami, um, We invest at the pre-seed and seed stage, so we believe in being kind of the first institutional check into uh, a company. Um, we're a little bit further along than idea stage, per se. We like to see some sort of traction in a finished product that's been tested in the market in some capacity, uh, but we do like to come in as early as possible um, into those companies. We're industry agnostic and, and kind of vertical agnostic, but find ourselves these days skewing a little bit more towards direct-to-consumer and CPG. Um, we learned some pretty valuable lessons in our fund one about how those companies work, what their unit economics should look like, what's success versus failure versus plateauing. Um, and I think some of our portfolio companies that are in those segments have have done really well. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of us and um, how we think about where we want to invest timing and then um, stage that we like to invest in.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you defined you know, how you all invest at the pre-seed and seed stage. I think it's sort of a black box these days in terms of what pre-seed is and what seed is. And I I think it is really based off of where your fund is geographically Um, because a seed in the Bay is definitely different from a seed in Kansas City or Indiana or even Atlanta. So totally understand that. And one of the things that I admire about 68 as a firm is how you all operate at such a high level with a very, very lean team. So <laughs> I would love to dive into you know firm structure a little bit and, and any insights that you and your team has on on operating in an incredibly lean fashion and how that maybe serves as a competitive advantage for you all.
1: Yeah, I, I can't take credit for it. I think that's something that Kelly Jones, our managing director and co-founder, has been super intentional about. Over the last couple of years, I mean, when you're operating a smaller fund, uh, the reality is you just have less resources. Um, and so we raised about a $20 million fund. One, um, you know, some people might kind of use that all in people or personnel resources. We've chosen to use it in our infrastructure resources. So the things that support us to be kind of uh, the best versions of ourselves, and then be able to connect our founders to the best resources. And so I think some of the advantages of it are you know, hey, we operate a, a two person team essentially. It's Kelly and myself that are on the investment team. And then our back office is run by Julie Whitehead, uh, who's our CFO. Um, she manages the back office of both Alice Ventures, which is our sister fund of sorts, if you want to call it that, um, and 68 Capital. And so she helps us with everything from capital calls to financing transactions to kind of doing our end of year audits and compiling financial information from our portfolio company. She's incredible. I don't know what we would do without her um, because she's just phenomenal and has been a huge help. Um, But I think having that type of structure allows us to do something that I think is a differentiator in investing, which is move quickly and decisively. Like we don't have time to kind of bicker back and forth or have a bunch of hands in the pot. Well, we decide we like something, we go really fast. And that is kind of an advantage and I think strategic uh, alignment for us, because when we find a company that we like, we can move from first conversation to close You know, on average somewhere between 30 to 45 days. So we're not leaving founders kind of stringing along or, or asking tons of questions. I mean, we have a pretty comprehensive due diligence process that we say, hey, these are all the things that we're looking for. And now that we've figured out the way that we evaluate things, we, we move quickly. So that's kind of the first piece of it. I think where, you know, I don't wanna talk about all the things that are incredible about it, but maybe some of the limitations are is, you know, you have two people that are constantly working, right? Um, yep. And I do think that we have kind of stretched beyond our britches, if you wanna call it that. Um, and as we think about now going into Fund 2 and executing on Fund 2, which is a reality today, we are thinking about, okay, like what does that team expansion look like? Where are we strongest? Where are we weakest? And where can we sort of add value in around those things? You know, Kelly and I both collectively sit on a couple of different boards of our portfolio companies as well. And so we're having to really think through what does that look like? Because we've serviced our portfolio companies in a lot lot of different ways. And so just wanting to continue to be a value add, wanting to continue to be strategic and then wanting to continue to be very fast and decisive and, and making sure that we can invest in the companies we like.
0: Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And one thing that you mentioned, I think Julie, she's kind of your CFO, back office um, secret weapon. and we have something similar like that at Valor John Luke Van Holst. He's you know our back office, you know doing all the dirty work, um, all the auditing, those types of things. and I think that really helps the firm scale, um, especially when that that function is in-house internally. Um, it it just adds such a seamless dynamic of communication and transparency from a fund reporting um, capital call perspective. So you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And Naj, you have such a fascinating story of of True Hustle, right? You've been on both sides of the equation here. You've (laughs) built a startup before. You've built multiple startups before, I believe. You've seen companies grow, scale. You've seen companies die. And and now here you are as the An investor helping companies grow and scale from many of the lessons that I'm sure you learned in in building your company and also investing and seeing other companies just naturally die out as they do in this thing that we do call venture capital. So
1: tell us a little bit about your story
0: and and how you broke into VC.
1: Man, it was um, I think that people try not to rely on luck as a thing, but I think luck is a symptom of timing, right? Like sometimes the right thing just happens at the right time. Um, and I'm a man of faith, and I do believe that everything happens the way it's supposed to. um But there's just been some situations I've been in, man, where I've just been like, "Wow!" Like I'm very fortunate that I was in that place at that time to be able to to do that thing. Because if you look at my career, it's like a zigzagging like ravine. Like it's like I'm not actually supposed to be here. I don't actually have any of the foundational qualifications, um, and I didn't go to business school uh, yet. So um, all in all, I think that everything that I've done and everything I've tried to learn has stacked on top of itself to get to the ultimate goal. So I think when I was in college, man, I had I had two goals. Um, I was sitting down with one of my mentors, and I said, uh, I want to be the best CEO that I can possibly be. My dream job has always been to be the CEO of Apple. Um, So I don't know if anyone listens to this at Apple, maybe 10 years from now, we can make that a reality. Um, And then the other thing that I said, Will, and I didn't actually even know what PE or venture capital was at the time, was I want to buy and sell multiple companies. Like that is, I said those things before I even knew what like the structure of it was. And so those two kind of items being my North Star is what led me to wanting to start a company is what led me to, even though we, you know, relatively failed in that company from a um, exit or liquidity standpoint, we succeeded in that we got to fall in love with entrepreneurship and figure out okay, how do we roll these learnings into the next thing? And so that's a little bit about you know, kind of, kind of where I come from, man, and and, and why my mindset is the way it is. You know, I tell people that the the true foundation of even that of even wanting to start something and build is predicated on the fact that you know I come from a family that. Um, uh, started from humble means. Um, and, and, and we are by no means kind of where I think our family should be. We've gotten a lot better over the generation that I've been a part of. But in a lot of ways, you know, I'm kind of out in front. Um, and I'm only 27, you know, and there are people in my family that are 75. And so, um, I take it very seriously. The, the, the economic kind of health of my family and what the generation after us might look like. And then beyond that, I've always been deeply invested in the community. So people that look like me, people that come from places that I come from, people that again, don't have the credentials to be in the rooms, but maybe have the talent or the sheer drive to be. And so a lot of my motivation has been tied in wanting to create opportunity for other people that you know weren't adequately given those things. Um, and then the last piece that I'll just touch on, man, a, a kind of learning lesson that I've gotten a- along the way is I think when I realized I was capable of creating, I think everybody has this moment right like where you're like oh i have like this power like i can i can do things and if people like the things i do or people are interacting with the things i do um your ego starts to take over yeah. you start to think that like i'm so great or like everything i'm doing is so great and most of the times when i try to do things on my own under that pretense they fail the things that i've been a part of that have been successful was when I came in and played a role. Very similar to any team, right? Like you have played sports. When you come in and you play your role well, you know that's when you can actually be a part of a team that's building something substantial. And that's where I was a part of the first successful startup that went on to raise multiple rounds of capital. That was when I went into PE, saw them close on a billion dollar fund. That's when I went to 68 Capital, helped the founding team get off the ground and continue to grow. And so um, I think that I'm now starting to understand my true talent, my true value, I'm in my true role in a team, but also understanding that to create this vision of a better future tomorrow that I see, to be the CEO of a big company, to be buying and selling companies, you have to kind of kill the ego a bit and be willing to work alongside others that are just as brilliant, if not more. Yeah. And I would love to kind of double click on that and maybe dive in a
0: bit further on that point, because playing your part and playing your role early on is, is so important to how you, you grow and progress uh, because you become known for something. And I think it's good right now that you, know, you and I are both at relatively small firms where we're able to touch a lot of the day-to-day execution and operations of firm building, investing, um, deploying capital. And you know, wh- what are some of your general thoughts and learnings on Progressing your career as a young junior VC, and, and and how does being this sort of Swiss Army knife play an important role in the natural progression of you know the the venture hierarchy from analyst to associate to senior associate to principal to VP, whatever each refre- uh, respective firm's track is? Like, how do you see this being a Swiss Army knife play an important part in that?
1: VC in particular, maybe even like PE or investment banking, finance in general, I think is like an apprentice game, right? Like you can go to school, you can get the qualifications, but at the end of the day, you have to demonstrate that you can do the work. And the work is very hard and it's very arduous and it takes a long time. And there's different components. There's finance, there's business development, there's operational efficiency, there's some legalities of it. And so you have to demonstrate in this industry that not only are you capable of doing the work and doing it well, that you're capable of doing it over a long period of time. And I think that translates to, to to really any industry, but specifically in VC. And so when you're a junior person, it took me a long time to realize it, but sometimes it's okay to be little bro because you're getting to practice, right? Like you're getting to practice alongside other people that have been doing it for longer than you. And, and and for us, man, like you're talking about an industry that has what, 2000 investment professionals globally, like this is still like a fairly nascent industry, right? So we talked about this the other day on the phone, like for us to be in the positions that we are, I look at you, Will, like you're going to need to be in a position you are like is incredible, right? Because like you're getting to come in where your partners have maybe spent the last 15, 20 years learning this game, but they started at a much further threshold than you, right? Like they were probably late thirties, mid thirties, whatever it may be. I mean, you're already 10 years ahead, but now getting the knowledge that they have from the previous 20 years. And so when I say to myself, like sometimes it's okay to be little bro, it's our trajectory and, you know, God willing, our our lifetime tail is so long that there's so many things that we can learn. Mm -hmm. And there's so many ways that we can get better. And so the way that I've kind of cultivated my mindset is like, Am I getting an opportunity to learn every single day new things? And currently, yes, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm so short-sighted that I'm not thinking about, okay, how do I roll these learnings into the next thing, right? And so I've been able to now figure out what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I like to add value in, what I don't like to add value in, how I can help portfolio companies operate. Um, and, and, And I think that as I kind of strategically plan for whatever's next, it's... I want to do this, but on a larger scale, right? Like so, so, so I think that it's a reframing of the mindset, right? Like no one comes in and is just automatically partner. We see the news headlines every day, but unless you were like a wonderlust kid that at 21 sold a company for a billion dollars, like people are still going to say, Hey, you have to prove that you understand this work and that you can do it well. And and that's just the phase that we're in. And so I, I used to kind of be stumped by it because I felt like, ah, I'm not growing as fast as I want to, but I had to change my mindset. Sometimes growth is lateral versus just vertical, right? Um, and sometimes growth even means taking a step back to be able to then take 10 steps forward. And so the reframing of that and looking at other ways that I could kind of sharpen that that army, that, that Swiss army knife, you know, that we're talking about in different ways to be a more rounded investor, to be a more rounded operator. I think is what has helped me actually progress um, to leadership positions within the industry. Yeah, no, I can double click on that and deeply resonate
0: with what you're saying there, Naz. And I want to transition the conversation here a bit, right? You spent some intentional time over the last few months, boots on the ground in many different cities like L.A., Denver, uh, Charlotte, D.C., New York, and you were digital nomadic. And you wrote an incredible article on Medium about your time spent on the road, really immersed in these different cities. And you know, and one, one of the fascinating points that resonated with me in the article was your thoughts on finding outliers and, and pattern matching and how essentially investors are typically looking for the same things and in very recognizable patterns. So would love for you to expound on your thoughts here and, and how these insights around pattern matching versus founding outliers came to light during your time as a digital nomad and and also it'd be awesome to understand the essence of wanting to digital nomad um as a vc
1: yeah i guess i'll start there and then maybe i'll get into a little bit of the pattern matching versus outliers um kind of thesis that i came up with But, you know, I was leaving Kansas City, so I I moved to Kansas City originally for Venture for America, which is a two-year fellowship entrepreneurship program for young people that are looking to build their own companies in the next three to five years. And so I was kind of placed in Kansas City, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the community, fell in love with their hunger for growth. Uh, But my two years was up. And so at that moment in time, I said, "Okay, I'm either going to stay here in Kansas City and commit to building for several years, or I'm going to go somewhere else. There's been other places that have been on my radar, um, namely the West coast. Um, and so I was like, Hey, like, maybe I'll just go live other places. Or maybe I'll go home for a little bit. At, at that time I had some mentors that I was kind of bouncing ideas off of, which I, I frequently do. And one of them you know, said to me, Hey, if you're going to be traveling and, and meeting people, you know, why don't you put some intentionality behind it? And why don't you write about it? And so, You know, collectively, we came up with this idea to travel to different burgeoning, but also existing startup ecosystems, meet with their leaders across tech, technology enabled services, but also just like community leaders, right? Like ecosystem builders, political leaders, et cetera, and and just learn, like learn about the things that they were doing that allowed their ecosystems to thrive and why maybe one seemed more successful than the other and what were the kind of measurements of success and things like that. And then I just did it, man. Like I was like, okay, you know, I used my family's home in Virginia as a home base, my grandmother's house, but every like two weeks I was on the road and I would just spend time in these places. And the one thing overall that I started to learn is that no matter the geography or the kind of backdrop, we're all much more similar than I think we we choose to believe we are, right? Like I think that you're in the Southeast and I'm in the Midwest. And there's some people in the Northeast and there's some people in the West Coast. And 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 while yes, the maybe cultures or customs are slightly different or the way that we do things or the way that we define rounds or the way that we invest or strategies are different. Like everyone is namely looking for access and education to be able to get kind of access. They're looking for capital resources to then drive the things that they're kind of thinking about and building. And then they're looking for connect- connectivity. You need a network of people that are going to help you get connected to partners, to customers, to strategic stakeholders, to actually help you build your idea to reality. And so that was what I started to find. And, and and I think that as I was starting to meet some really, really awesome people, I mean, I have to shout out cities like Tulsa, which I think are, you're seeing Tulsa, Grow from inception almost now that they've kind of committed to their tech um, ecosystem, but it's just really cool to see like how they're throwing a ton of resources into the city and into having founders come and move there, um, and so that was really dope to see. Philadelphia, I think, is setting the standard for how their educational institutions are funding programming around startup founders and ideas. I, I haven't seen anyone else do it better. I mean, like Drexel, UPenn, Wharton, like Temple. They have literally innovation schools and programs that are funding real dollars that are the size of like micro funds and other places to students that want to be building things. And so there's so many different ways, I think, to to figure out how we drive the innovation economy. And and what I realized the people that were hyper successful were doing is they're not necessarily pattern matching. Pattern matching is a thing that we as investors do to try and minimize risk, right? Because at the end of the day, our job is to, to mitigate that risk but they were looking for things outside the box, right? So maybe it's, yes, I'm looking in AI, but instead of looking at a functional feature of something that might make one small thing better, I'm looking at who's going to redefine the way we cognitively behave as a society over the next 25 years, right? And then how have they figured out how to commercialize that? Or or maybe they haven't. Maybe those are things that we can add resources and value to. And so I, I think that, especially in the geographies we're in, where we're looking at you know specific kind of targeted returns and specific types of companies, we've gotten constrained to this idea of, hey, well, we've seen what works. Let's look for the next things that fit those patterns of what works versus are we looking for the things that are truly going to change the way we behave, act, and interact as a society? Because typically those are the things that are actually driving innovation and then again, are the most lucrative. And so I got to learn a bunch of lessons about that, man. I did write some in the article. Um, I even built a contact database of um, folks that I thought were kind of like need to know people in those cities that I'm happy to share with anyone that goes and reads the article.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just your name and Sierra Chris on Medium is your handle. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Man, that's that's so profound. And I think it's natural for us at this point, right? We're humans, we're creatures of habits. We have patterns that we follow daily. And it's like, we're taught from adolescence that behavior, behaving in a pattern is a good thing that helps us fit into society. But I think on the other side of that is when you look at the realm of company building, I think to achieve outsized success, you have to champion and pattern breaking. And I think from a from a cognitive behavior standpoint, you look at, you know, companies like Airbnb and, and Uber that really transformationally shifted how we think about hospitality and rideshare. And I think we're we're going to see the next wave of companies that are transformationally shifting how we operate in day-to-day life with AI built over the next, you know, Three, five, ten years or so, and I'm excited for that. And man, that that article was great. I encourage everyone who's listening now to go to go read it, check it out, and really immerse yourselves in the Sears thoughts. Um, and, I appreciate that, bro. Thank you. Yeah, man. And you know, you've been with 68 for some time now, and you've been able to really help shape the direction of the firm. And I think a big part of shaping the direction of a firm is bringing deals and, and executing on those deals. So we'd love to talk about maybe one of your favorite deals that you've worked on so far. And, and, and how do you build conviction around doing a deal and winning internal buy-in from, from Kelly and the, and the others
1: on the team? For sure. Um, it definitely wasn't easy. Uh, it, it, it took some time. It was both the combination of me getting a little bit more confident in my own abilities, but also truly learning how the team works, right? Like you have to buy into the strategy of the team that you're with. And then again, to kind of reference an earlier point, you have to kind of play your role. And I think doing that really well um, has carved out a lane for me where I've been able to earn trust um with the team, Kelly, and then the rest of our kind of investment advisory board and committee. Um, and then also with our founders. Um, you know, I, I don't like to pick favorites because I think that um, all of our portfolio companies are great and doing things, um, in phenomenal ways. Um, but you know, I can talk about one of our companies that's growing the fastest, I would say. Um, and that is a uh, prediction strike. So we talked about this deal before, Will. I'm still trying to figure out how I can get you in on it. Um, but, um, it is the world's first fantasy sports stock market. So, um, think sports betting, except different. It's a game of skill where you can trade virtual shares of your favorite athletes, Um, So, you know, I am a huge fan of LeBron James. Um, I can look at LeBron James's performance on the court. I can look at some things that he does off the court, whether that be, you know, things that come up in the media or news or whatever, and it affects his stock value on the platform. I can then invest in him. And similar to the stock market, I will get marginal gains over time as he either performs above or below what the market is predicting he's going to do. The market being sports analysts, sports reporters, teams, ESPN, kind of major conglomerates that are saying, oh, we think LeBron is going to average XYZ or play this many games or do XYZ. They meant a huge hit in the market. They have several hundred thousand followers or excuse me, um, uh, users. They have a pretty good following as well, but they have several hundred thousand users. Um, they've been able to transact over 60 million in transactions. You know, the company's only been around a few years. And so they're seeing incredible kind of spikes in growth right now. And actually recently closed on their series A, They raised a $10 million series A um, <clears throat> and their valuation is just incredible, like almost tripled their valuation since we have invested. And so to, to see them do so well, in this kind of nascent market reminds me of a couple different things. And I think is, is, is how I built conviction. And I also just want to shout out Abahisha uh, Crumbly, um, who's at Collab Capital, which is, I think in your, in your neck of the woods, because she actually introduced me to the founding team. So shout out B. Um, but it, they're doing the things that we talked about. So they were building in an industry that is well-known sports has been around. I mean, we saw in COVID-19, Sports literally didn't stop. People will throw their last dollars into watching sports games because it gives them some sort of confidence or, or, or excitement or happiness or peace. Um, and so they're building in the sports industry. They're using technology to scale quickly and they're doing something novel. Right. And so we actually have founder archetypes broken up within the 68 thesis of, of things that we like to see. So there's the bootstrapper, there's the community builder, and then there's the market maker. And these are kind of three buckets that we kind of funnel our founders into. And they are market makers. They're doing something that's never been done before. There are two other competitors in the market, Alex Rodriguez with Mojo being one of them, but have not successfully figured out their user experience. And so we saw, hey, you guys have kind of figured out something by being the first to the market. Secondarily, they provided a unique value offering that keeps their users engaged on a daily basis. A lot of the times when I'm trying to build conviction, I'm trying to figure out, is this something that's mission critical? As in, are people going to use this every day to accomplish whatever it is they want to do, whether that be for enjoyment or whether that be for progress and work? Or is it something that's like a nice to have? And if it's a nice to have, then it's okay. It's not that relevant to what we're trying to do. People are not going to pay for it. Eventually you're going to have people churn. I mean, that's where like all your unit economics come in. But foundationally, like, is this a need to have? And they figured out a way to be extremely sticky. They built uh, an exceptional community around their, their users that... um is allowing them to engage on a daily basis. I'm trying to figure out how much to say without giving away too much secret sauce, but they built this exceptional community where they're fully engaged. They have their own team members that are engaged with the users on a daily basis. Um and then lastly, you know, have been very strategic about going and getting partnerships with agencies, with sports players, with athletes, with teams. Um and and, and all those things combined, you know, you throw in Devin and Brad, who I think are just absolutely brilliant, right? Like Devin is Harvard grad, Harvard JD grad as well. Um, you know, Brad is just phenomenal. Um, worked in investment banking before he went into technology. I mean, they're super capable um, and they're super determined. And, and and the last piece I'll just kind of say on this about conviction is, you know, the obvious things are you have to be smart and you have to be capable and you have to have a good idea, um, you know, but you also have to be determined. Um, and I actually saw a clip the other day about Sam Altman um, where he talked about, you know, founders don't estimate the frequency and propensity of bad things that happen when you're building a company. And the ability to push through those bad things on a regular basis and then not give up is actually what separates the good from the great. And I saw that in the founding team with prediction strike after spending just a short amount of time with them. And so That's how we kind of evaluated the deal, Um, and it's incredible to see that they have actually done really well under one of our top performing portfolio companies. And it's kind of similar to how we evaluate other deals as well.
0: Yeah, that is a really fascinating company, and you're right; they're operating in such a a market that didn't die throughout COVID. I think sports was one of the only markets that thrived uh, during COVID, and you look at where. It is now from a segment, Prize Picks, FanDuel, um, all these markets are just on fire right now. Companies are growing tremendously. Shout out to Prize Picks, they're an Atlanta based company as well. So I love how you think about backing founders, building visionary companies that are pushing the boundaries of, of what's possible today. And I think that's so important as an investor. From a, from a general perspective, but also from a pre-seed and seed stage perspective, where you're basically working with ideas that have very early functionality, and there's not a lot of proof points there, and you have to be so convicted in that this team is going to take this little egg, grow it, and eventually hatch and, and scale. And so that's that's the thing that I just love about early stage venture capital in Oz. and Man, this has been an incredible conversation. We could talk all day about, you know, your insights and in and 68 and, and how you see the world from your lens. But I think this is a great place to wrap,
2: Nas. Appreciate you for joining me today, man. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to hear it. Thanks for being a part of the community of courage by listening to the visionary founders and investors on the Atlanta Startup Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of the over 200 investors and founders sharing their insider tips and secrets to growth. Our regular listeners tell us we're the briefing room for the innovation economy in the fastest growing region of the country, the South, and when you subscribe, you become part of the inside circle. The Atlanta Startup Podcast is proudly hosted by Valor VC. Valor is a venture capital firm that leads seed rounds in AI and B2B SaaS startups. If you like the podcast, check out more of Valor's programs for courageous founders and investors, like Startup Runway. Over $100 million in early-stage venture capital is catalyzed through Startup Runway's grant-making program for pre-seed startups. Go to StartupRunway.org to learn more and apply directly for non-dilutive capital. Valor celebrates VC Day, the largest early-stage private capital conference in the region, at the end of the year. Top founders, leading VCs, endowments and family offices attend. Learn more at VC.day. At Valor, Courage is the currency of innovation and the heartbeat of our culture. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.